Okay, folks, open up your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 9. We are still working our way through this powerful, meaty, theological, and difficult chapter. Still working our way through. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 24 today. 19 to 24. And we're going to be looking at Paul's second objection to divine sovereignty and salvation. But before we do, let's just bow our heads for a moment. Let's talk to God. Lord, thank you that we have access to you through Jesus Christ. We come now, we draw near, and we pray for grace to open our understanding and to be able to see what you have proclaimed to us in your word. We pray for a greater vision of our God. Help us to see you and know you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 9 is all about the sovereignty of God in salvation. His absolute sovereignty to do what He wills, when He wills, to whom He wills. You see, what Paul is doing is he's talking about the true Israel of God. In chapter 9, verse 6, he says, It's not as though the word of God has failed, for they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And what he means is that not every physical descendant of Abraham is part of the true Israel. Well then, who is part of the true Israel? If not every physical descendant is, who's part of it? How does someone get included in God's true Israel? And Paul tells us, well, I'll give you a couple of examples to share how that happens. I'll give you the example of Isaac, and I'll give you the example of Jacob. In Isaac's example, he was included in the true Israel of God because God did a miracle. A supernatural birth occurred when his parents couldn't, couldn't produce a baby. God produced a baby and brought Isaac into the world and made him part of that covenant line through which the Messiah would come. So it, it took a miracle for Isaac to be included in the people of God. In Jacob's case, verse 11 tells us it was through God's purpose, according to God's choice, and according to God's call that Jacob was made part of the true Israel of God. It had nothing to do with anything that he had done, good or bad. It wasn't because of his works. We're even told in verse 16, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So the man who wills, that's his choice. The man who runs, that's his actions. It doesn't depend on man's choices or man's actions. It depends upon God making a sovereign decision to include him in the Israel of God, the true Israel. So what have we learned? We've learned that it takes a supernatural miracle. Today we would call that the new birth, regeneration. It also in, takes God including you in his eternal purpose, his sovereign choice, and his effectual call to bring you into his kingdom and his family. Now, if we've understood Paul correctly, by the time we get to verse 14, we're starting to have these questions in our mind. And so Paul brings up a couple of questions that he knows people are going to have that are listening to him as he's writing this epistle. The first objection is, well, that, does that mean God is unjust to choose some and not choose others? That's what he says in verse 14. There is no injustice with God then, is there? Is God unjust if he chooses some and passes over others. And Paul's point is, 
No. Those he judges get exactly what they deserve, and that's the meaning of justice, is to, to, to give to someone a righteous punishment for evil. That's justice. God is God, and he has every right to do whatever he desires to do. That's what he's saying here in verse 15. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. It depends on God who has mercy. And then he brings up the illustration of Pharaoh, He's already talked about having mercy. Now he's going to talk about hardening. And so he brings up the example of Pharaoh. And he says that God raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate his power so that his name would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. You see what God is really concerned about? His name being proclaimed through the whole earth. His power being made known. God is wanting to demonstrate who he is to his creation. And so he has no problem Raising up someone to show forth his greatness and his power and his glory. And he summarizes the whole argument in verse 18 with the words, So then, so we know he's, this is a summation. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. He hardened Pharaoh. He has mercy on others. That leads directly into the second objection which is in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? You see, verse 18 leads logically to verse 19. Because in verse 18 he says, he hardens whom he desires. Well, if God hardens whomever he desires, that means that we can't resist his will because he's hardened us. So why would he find fault with this if he's hardened us? Do you see the, the logic there? Um... <laughs> And it seems very logical. How could God ever find fault with somebody if he hardened them? That's his question. His answer is in verses 20 to 24. And he doesn't really give us a straight up answer to the question. <laughs> he gives us sort of a roundabout answer. But we want to know how can it be that you can condemn someone whom you have hardened? Right? That doesn't seem to match up in our sense of justice or a sense of thinking. So the second objection goes like this. Is God unjust to condemn those that he hardens? Is he unjust to do that? Now, how do we know if we're understanding Paul's argument correctly? We know that we're understanding what he's been saying if we come up with the same objection ourselves in verse 19. Now, if we think Paul is really saying, well, God uh, just chooses those that he knows are going to choose him, that won't make any sense in his, these objections. The objections only make sense if God is absolutely sovereign to choose some and pass over others or to harden others. Now, we might say, well, was Pharaoh just a unique exception to the rule? Is he like the only one that God ever hardens? He's not. If we turn over two chapters to the book of Romans chapter 11 and look at verse 7. Paul says, what then? What Israel is seeking it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. The rest of who? The rest of the physical descendants of Abraham. The rest of the physical Israel. True Israel 
the ones that were chosen, they obtained salvation. They obtained the righteousness through faith. But the rest were hardened. Now, how many is that? Well, that was the majority of the whole nation of Israel when Paul was writing this letter. That was most of Israel. That would be millions of people were hardened. So Pharaoh's not the lone exception here. It, it carries much further than just one individual. Okay. Here's, here's the hard question. If God hardens whom he desires, how can he hold men responsible for their sin? That's the question we want answered. If God hardens whom he desires, how can God hold men responsible for their sin? The Bible doesn't explain how. At least I've never been able to find the answer in the Bible to that question. So I can't tell you an answer. I don't know how God does that. But I know he does. I know he does. You've got a whole system of theology over here. It's called hyper-Calvinism. And they deny that God holds men responsible for their sin. They say man is not responsible. God is totally sovereign. He does everything. Then you've got another school of thought over here. It's called Arminian theology. And they say God is not sovereign in salvation. Man makes the final cho choice. Man is the uh, determiner of his eternal destiny through his own act of his will. So one school of thought denies the sovereignty of God. The other school of thought denies the responsibility of man. And I want to tell you, I don't think that we should be denying either one of those truths. I think they're both in our Bibles. In Romans 9, we have the absolute sovereignty of God. And if you were to turn back to Romans 6 and verse 23, you'd see the responsibility of man. Well, we won't look at it right now, but we'll get to that. The responsibility of man is also taught in our Bibles. So God is absolutely sovereign in salvation, yet he does this while he preserves man's accountability for his sinful actions and unbelief. How? I don't know. I'm not sure how that works together. And that's probably one of the mysteries we're going to have cleared up for us on the other side when we get to glory. Maybe we're going to see, we see through a mirror darkly now, maybe we're going to see this crystal clear on the other side. If a person perishes, they will do so for real sin and real guilt. They are really to blame and their own conscience is going to condemn them on the final day. We are not puppets and we are not robots. We have a mind, we have emotions, we have a conscience, and we have a will. A robot doesn't have those things. A puppet doesn't have those things. We are real individuals that make real choices that really matter. All of that is true. But it's also true that God does harden impenitent sinners. And we've seen an example here in Pharaoh. Now, when God hardens a person's heart, he doesn't harden an innocent heart. He comes to a sinful heart, and as an act of his justice or ju judicial judgment, he hardens the heart that he finds, and the heart that he finds is a corrupt, sinful, rebellious heart. Not an innocent, pure, righteous heart. God is merely making hard the kind of heart that, he, that the sinner already has. So we have to hold on to these twin truths. The sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. We hold them in tension, though we cannot figure it out. <laughs> well, let's work our way through the passage starting in verse 20 and see how Paul answers that question. The question is, is God unjust to condemn those he hardens? Paul's answer, verse 20. 
First answer is man has no right to question God's actions. That's what he says in verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Notice man and God. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? We have no right to demand that God will explain his actions to us. Why not? Because he's God and we're not. We, we are a man. We're a human. We are a creature. He's the creator. He is infinitely above anything that he has made. Think of the distance that we feel between ourselves and a slimy cockroach. We think, man, that's such a huge distance. I am so much superior than that cockroach down there. Well, God is infinitely higher than you, than you are to that cockroach. Because the cockroach is a creature. And you are a creature. We're all in the same class. We're creatures. God's not a creature. Everything that is owes its existence to him. He's in a class by himself. And who are you, O oh creature, to question God and to accuse God and to blame God for what he has decided to do? That's Paul's real issue here. And on top of all of that, our moral and spiritual faculties have been impaired through sin. So it's crazy, it's ludicrous for the sinner to judge God, the absolutely holy one, because we can't understand all of his actions. He says in the, the second part of verse 20, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? We're the thing molded. He's the molder. He puts God, he imagines God as a potter working on a wheel and he's got this clay and he's fashioning vessels. And so if God makes one vessel to put his trash in and he makes another vessel as a beautiful vase to put up on the mantelpiece for everyone to admire, well, who are we? to complain, or to argue, or to fight. Who, who are we? He, he's the one, he's the potter. Doesn't the potter have a right to make whatever kind of vessel he wants to make? So we, we, we say things like, Lord, it wasn't right for you to make me like this. I didn't want to be a vessel for common use. You shouldn't have made me like this. Why did you make me like this? I don't like the fact that you made me like this. And so we have all these objections to what God has done. But the, the bottom line is the clay pot has no right to challenge the potter. We understand that, don't we? The potter has all the rights. That clay pot has no existence apart from the potter. He can't blame the potter. He was created to serve the potter's interests. Right? Whatever that potter made, he made it to serve his own interests. He wasn't doing it for the pot. <laughs> the pot was made for the potter. So, Paul's first point, man has no right to question God's actions. His second point is God has every right to do what he wants with his creatures. And that's what he says in verse 21. Does not the potter have a right over the clay? to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. Now we grant this right to each other all the time. 
if, if, if you know a man who's a potter, you say that guy has a right to make a beautiful vase or a sewage pipe out of that clay. <laughs> right? It, it's totally his decision. And nobody can blame him for deciding to make one or the other. Um, if my, my uh, daughter-in-law is an artist, if she decides to take out that canvas and to produce a beautiful landscape with that's sunny, lots of uh, vibrant colors, and it's a happy feeling, well, that's her right. But if she decides to make a, a dark sky with this tornado coming through, ripping up a town, well, that's her right too. She's the artist. She gets to make the decision. I, I'm a banjo player. And I've written songs in the banjo. If I decide I want to write a happy song that's cheerful and upbeat, that's my prerogative. If I want to make more of a sad, slow, mournful song, well, that's my right too. Um, Anna is a florist. If she wants to make, if she wants to take these flowers for his, for her arrangement, and bypass the others, or even take them and throw them in the garbage and just use these, that's her right. She is the what do you call her? A florist. <laughs> a creator of flower arrangements. <laughs> That's her right to do that. A builder. A builder has the right to either ch build a magnificent temple or a mud hut. Right? They can make whatever they want to make. So why do we give everybody else the right to do whatever they want and we deny it to God? He's the creator. Either we say the potter has no right over the clay, which is ludicrous, or we must be silent before God's absolute sovereignty. Notice in verse 21, he speaks about the same lump. Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump? God isn't making a vessel of wrath from one lump of clay and a vessel of mercy from another lump of clay. It's all the same lump. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, what kind of a lump is it? If you get vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy out of this lump of clay, what kind of clay is it? It's fallen clay. Sinful clay. Because you can't have wrath if there's no sin. Wrath is only God's response, His holy indignation to evil, right? You can't have mercy without sin. You don't need mercy if, you don't, if there's no sin in your life. So this is a sinful lump of clay that God is dealing with. And he makes from that same batch of sinful clay, some for vessels of honor and some vessels of dishonor. Some vessels of wrath, some vessels of mercy. And that's why God has to make a choice if God made no choice with this fallen, sinful lump of clay, there would be no vessels, there would be no one saved. So he's going to have to make a choice because they are fallen and they're headed towards eternal damnation unless somebody, someone, changes their direction. Now, is God unjust to condemn those he has hardened? Let me put it this way. If God were to infuse sin into righteous people and then harden them and then condemn them and punish them, that would be unjust. Because that would mean God is punishing righteous people. He's punishing innocent people. And that's, that's not just. The definition of, ju of justice is to give righteous retribution for crimes committed or evil committed. But that's not what's happening. God isn't infusing sin into righteous people. <laughs> 
We, through our own actions, Adam and Eve were the ones that started this whole thing, but we followed in their train, followed their example, and all of us have deliberately rebelled against our Creator. And so God is just to bring a judicial hardening and then to condemn those who have rebelled against Him. So it's not unjust at all for God to do this. Man is truly at fault, and God is righteously punishing evildoers. Now, that brings us to the third point that Paul deals with here. Uh, the first one is, man has no right to question God's actions. God has every right to do what he wants with his creatures. But then thirdly, Paul points out to us in verse 22 and 23, that God deals with all men as either vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy. Let's talk about vessels of wrath. Verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, the word although in the New American Standard should not be there. It wasn't in the Greek. It's supplied. Uh, actually, the ESV has the best rendering, I think, of this passage. I'll read it to you. As soon as I find it. Here we go. Here's the ESV rendering. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So that's, that's more of a literal rendering of what we have in the Greek. What if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience these vessels of wrath? Okay. Notice that Paul changes the metaphor from verse 21 to 22. The metaphor in verse 21 is vessels of honor, vessels for common use. In verse 22, it's vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Now, also in verse 21, he speaks about a vessel for common use, a vessel for honor. Singular. Verse 22, he lengthens that out. Now it's plural. It's vessels. Vessels of wrath. Vessels of mercy. So a vessel of wrath is a vessel, a person destined for wrath. Are there any people that are destined for wrath? Evidently. Evidently there are. There are vessels of wrath, Paul says in verse 22. Now he says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. He says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing. He has not destined us for wrath. He has destined us for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, doesn't that imply that he has destined others, the ones that weren't destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ? They have been inadvertently destined for wrath. It's not that God is putting forth this positive energy that he, you know, he wants, he's putting forth this power to purposely destine these people for wrath, but he's passed them over. He has not chosen them, and because, by default, because they have not been chosen, there is this destiny that they have for wrath. So this presupposes, since they're destined for wrath, that they are sinful, because none but sinners receive wrath, 
God's holiness requires wrath upon sin. And notice that the vessels of wrath have already been illustrated for us in the case of Pharaoh. Look at verse 17. For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. He raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate his power in him. Well, what does he say in verse 22? God is willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known to these vessels of wrath. Just like in the case of Pharaoh, he was demonstrating his power. In the case of these vessels of wrath, he's making his power known in them. Also in the case of Pharaoh, he was very long-suffering and patient. He didn't he didn't bring the hammer down on Pharaoh the first time that he resisted God's will and refused to let the people of God go. And so God brought plague after plague after plague until there was ten of them and finally he ended up destroying him in the Red Sea along with his army. But God was very patient and he endured him with much long suffering. Exactly the same thing that he does with these vessels of wrath in verse 22. He's patient. He endures them. Because God is long suffering. He's slow to anger. But that doesn't mean he'll never get angry. He's just slow to anger. Another thing we need to see about these vessels of wrath is it says they're prepared for destruction. But in verse 23, it points it out a little bit differently for the vessels of mercy. The vessels of mercy, it says, he prepared them beforehand for glory. The vessels of wrath, it doesn't say he prepared them for glory. It says they are prepared for destruction. Isn't that interesting? He could have said, which God prepared them for destruction. Uh, he endured with much patience vessels of wrath, which he prepared for destruction, but it doesn't say that. It just says they are prepared. Well, who's doing the preparing of these sinners for their own destruction? I think they are. I think they are, because Paul has already told us in Romans 2, verse 5, that very thing. In Romans 2, 5, he says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul puts all the onus on them when it comes to their own damnation and their own destruction. He says, You are responsible for your own sin and your own destruction. You're preparing yourself for it because you're, you have an unrepentant heart and this is a stubborn unrepentant heart. You will not repent even though the gospel call has come again and again and you've heard it. You won't repent of your sin and turn your life over to Christ. You're preparing yourself for destruction. So man is responsible for his damnation and God is responsible for man's salvation. That's the way I would put it. Now, let's turn our attention to the vessels of mercy. Verse 23. If vessels of wrath are people that are destined for wrath because of their stubborn and unrepentant hearts, then vessels of mercy are people who are destined for mercy because of God's purpose, choice, and call. That's what we see in the previous parts of this chapter. Not because of what they've done, but because of God's purpose, God's choice, and God's call. That's, we find that in verse 11 of Romans 9. Out of this great fallen lump of clay, God has fashioned vessels that he will have mercy upon and bring to glory. Now let's notice what it says about these vessels of mercy in verse 23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. 
So God is making known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. God's glory. He's making known the riches of his glory through these vessels of mercy. What is God's glory? Let's try to define that if we can. It's kind of hard to define. But this is the way I would define it. It's the display of who God is. God's putting himself on display. It's the display of his name, his character, his person. It's the outshining of all that he is as God. And God delights to make known the riches, I like that word, the riches of his glory. Because that tells us there's a lot more to the glory of God than we've ever imagined. He's rich in glory. We see a little bit now, but I think in heaven we're going to get a lot more. And as the ages unfurl, we're going to be receiving more and more revelation of the richness of the glory of this great God who's made us and redeemed us. So God loves to put his glory on display in showing mercy to his chosen ones. And so what part of God's glory does he put on display when he chooses people to salvation? Well, he puts his sovereignty on display, right? He puts his mercy on display, his love, his kindness, his grace, his power, his immutability. All of that is being put on display when he chooses someone unto salvation. So, are you a vessel of mercy? If you're a Christian, you are a vessel of mercy. If you've been born of the Spirit, you're a vessel of mercy. And God's desire is to make known His glory through what He's doing in your life. <laughs> He's glorifying Himself through you. Let's think about that phrase, make known. This is super important, I think. I don't know if you caught this as we've been going through Romans, but Paul has been emphasizing that phrase quite a bit. Oh, there's another phrase that's just like it. It's the word demonstrate. Like verse 17. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? To demonstrate his power in him. Or verse, let's see, 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known? Or verse 23. He did this to make known the riches of his glory. God is really, really interested in making things known and to demonstrating things. But what things is he wanting to demonstrate and make known? Well, he tells us his power, his wrath, his glory, and his mercy. In other words, he wants to make himself known. He want, that's what it means to put his glory on display. And th that's why God has vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, because he wants to communicate the knowledge of his glory to his creatures, to his universe. So this is, it's really important that we see what God is doing when it comes to the eternal destiny of his creatures. The way I kind of imagine it is that this earth is like a theater and a, a film is being played. And God is the producer and the director of the film. The hero of the story is Jesus, his son. And the goal of the film is to put the genius and the creativity of the author on display to all the people beholding it and to increase their enjoyment as they behold the film. So God is putting himself on display to his watching universe. Notice also that these vessels of mercy were prepared beforehand for glory. 
But it wasn't just that they were passively prepared. It says in verse 23, he prepared them. God prepares them for glory. What does God have to do to prepare somebody for glory? Well, he's already told us in Romans 8, 29 and 30. He foreknows them. He predestines them. He calls them. And he justifies them. That's what he has to do to prepare them for ultimate and everlasting glory. He foreknows them. means he foreloves them. He sets his love upon them from eternity past. Then he predestines them to be made like Jesus. Then he calls them out from sin and from the world. Then he pronounces them righteous because of the blood of Christ. And the final step is he glorifies them. So God prepares them every step along the way. And the last thing I want you to see about these vessels of mercy is that the way they actually are called into the true Israel is by God, well I've already said it, is by God calling them. Verse 24, he says, who are these vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory? It's even us whom he also called. You see, that's how they get to be a vessel of mercy, an actual experience. He's got to call them for this to happen. Even us whom he called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now remember that there's one school of thought that says that Romans 9 is not about the salvation of individuals. It's about God choosing certain nations to, to do his will and to accomplish his historical plan. But the pro, that, won't, that simply won't work because verse 24 tells us who these vessels of mercy are. It's not a nation. It's individuals that are called out from among the Gentiles and from among the Jews to make up this new Israel, this spiritual Israel of God. So, the way a person experiences becoming a vessel of mercy is through the powerful call of God. What is it? What is that? It's God awakening someone to a sense of their sin. It's God changing their heart taking out the old heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh. It's God opening up the eyes to see the beauty and loveliness of Christ and to detest sin. It's bringing about a fear of God within them. This, God calls them and they find themselves born anew, new creatures with new desires and habits and values and all of, all of life changes when the Holy Spirit breaks through into their life. And they're now a vessel of mercy. And they know it. I want to ask a question from verse 22 and 23 that a lot of people have asked me. And it's difficult to know the answer. But I think verse 22 and 23 probably give us the closest answer to any place in the Bible that I know of. And the question is, why did God ordain that sin should be? Sin could not be unless God had ordained it. It's not going to sneak in somehow without him noticing it, right? If, when God created the world, he either knew that there would be sin or he knew that there wouldn't be sin. Well, of course, God omniscient knew that sin was going to be part of this world. He either could go along with this plan and create the world or he could not. So he, had, he could stop all of this if he wanted to, but he didn't. He created the world knowing sin was going to enter in. Why? Why did God allow a world with evil in it? That's the question so many people have had. And I think verse 22 and 23 come about the closest to answering that question that I know anything about. 
So let me read again the ESV version because I think it's really, really good. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to, there's our key phrase, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In order to tells us why he allowed Vessels of mercy, mercy, I mean vessels of wrath to be. You can't be a vessels of, of wrath without sin. So it comes down to why did God allow sin? Well he says in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. There can be no proper appreciation of mercy unless it is against the black backdrop of wrath and power. Now, I don't think I can explain this any better than Jonathan Edwards does. So I'm going to read to you. He has a section in his, um, the works of Jonathan Edwards, he has a, a work called Concerning the Divine Decrees. And I'm going to read to you four paragraphs. Because I think he does a great job of summing this up. These are his words. Listen closely because you, you can easily not follow this. He's writing in 1700, so the language is a little bit different. He says, It is a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. And for the same reason, it is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. That is, that all parts of His glory should shine forth. That every beauty should be proportionably radiant that the beholder may have a proper notion of God. It is not proper that one glory should be exceedingly manifest and another not at all. Thus it is necessary that God's awful majesty, His authority and dreadful greatness, justice and holiness should be manifested. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed so that the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect, both because these parts of divine glory would not shine forth as the others do, and also the glory of His goodness, love, and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they could scarcely shine forth at all. If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, there could be no manifestation of God's holiness in hatred of sin or in showing any preference in his providence of God godliness before it. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. How much happiness soever he bestowed, his goodness would not be so much prized and admired, and the sense of it not so great. So evil is necessary in order to the highest happiness of the creature and the completeness of that communication of God for which he made the world. Because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of his love. And if the knowledge of him is imperfect, the happiness of the creature must be proportionably imperfect. I don't know if you can follow all that. But what he's saying is that the creature cannot attain to its highest happiness unless it understands the full orb of God's glorious attributes. Wrath is one of them. Justice is another one. Holiness is another one. You can't just put his love and grace and kindness on display without also putting wrath, holiness, and justice on display. So 
God had to do it this way to demonstrate the full orb of his glory and he had to do it this way for the full happiness of the creatures that he made because those creatures now can know God in perfection. They can know all of God, not just parts of God. I hope I sum up what Jonathan Evers is saying well enough there. Okay, let's break all this down. A couple thoughts for you for those that are saved, the converted. Again, I want you to hold truths in the Bible together in tension when they're not explained. And when they, when they feel, this is going to happen to you over and over. You're going to find two different things in the Bible that they both seem clear in the Bible, but you don't know how they fit. Jesus is 100% God. Jesus is 100% man. How, is that? How can one person be 100% of both? I don't know. So you see what I'm saying? You've got these mysteries in the Bible that when you see these mysteries, you just have to believe them and wait. <laughs> wait on God to show you. And he may, he, most of these are going to be waiting until you get to heaven. This is one of them. Man is responsible for his sin. God is sovereign in salvation. Don't throw out one to, to get rid of the tension. Don't throw out this one to get rid of the tension. Let it be tense. <laughs> Just deal with the tension because the Bible presents both of those truths and you've got to hold on to them. We don't like that. We like to kind of right, wrap everything up with a nice little bow and everything fits. No. no. <laughs> there are things in the Bible that just don't fit so nicely. So this is how I would sum it up. Oh, I told you I was going to do Romans 6.23. Let's do that. He says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that tell me? The consequences of sin is eternal death. The gift of God is eternal life. Wages are different from gifts. Wages you work for, a gift is freely offered, freely given. For the sinner, he's earned eternal death through sin. He's responsible for that. He's earned it. The saved person, he's been given eternal life. He didn't work for that. He didn't earn it. It was freely given to him. So the way I would sum it up is God is responsible for salvation. Man is responsible for sin and damnation. Salvation is all of God. Damnation is all of man. All glory to God for salvation. All blame to man and damnation. So these are the things we have to hold. Whether we can make it totally fit or not. We, we need to believe the word of God. And I also say to you who are saved. Romans 9 and the truths that we find in here. It's like a family secret. And what I mean by that is when you get into a discussion with someone about the gospel, you don't start with election. Election is something that you wait on. <laughs> you don't say, you know what, God may have chosen you, but he may not have, so you, you might just be doomed. You know, that's not the way you witness to someone. You start with them and their sin and their need of a Savior. You show them Jesus, his perfect righteousness. You show them the cross, how he's made expiation for sin, how God has poured out his wrath upon his son that he can freely forgive you. You show them the empty tomb. You show them that Jesus is alive from the dead, that a person can know him personally and be forgiven of all their sins. And then you say, come to him. Put your faith in this one. Put your faith in the Savior. 
once they've done that and they've given their lives to Christ, then it's time to let them in on the little family secret. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> you didn't come on your own? You were drawn irresistibly by the sovereign will of God. God set his love on you from eternity past. From everlasting, God has loved you. With cords of loving kindness, he has drawn you. You tell them that from eternity, God had set his love to bring, that, bring you into his kingdom and to bestow his love upon you. But that's something that we just get to a little bit down the line. It's a family secret. Well, what about an unconverted person? What does an unconverted person do with Romans chapter 9? Well, last June... My niece, 17 years old, she was visiting from Austin, Texas, and she sat here and she heard a sermon on Romans 8, 29, and 30. And in that sermon, I was talking about some of these truths. And after the sermon, we were driving to my son's house in Sonora, and I said, so what did you think of the sermon on Sunday? And she burst into tears. She was sobbing, and not just for a second, for quite a while. And by the time she could catch herself we said what's the matter what what are you what are you so disturbed about she says I don't know if God has chosen me that was really troubling her heart and so we tried to comfort her and talk to her but the final thing I told her was I said sweetheart if you want Jesus Jesus wants you and I think we can tell that to any unconverted person do you want him now, if you don't want him, why should you care whether he's chosen you or not? You don't want him. But if you want Jesus, if you're willing to have Jesus on his terms, if you're willing to turn away from this vain life of sin and have Christ to be your all in all, man, he wants you. He want, that's the only reason you want him in the first place, because he wants you. And he set his love on you. So that's what we can tell people. If you ever run into people who are troubled about the doctrines of election and predestination, just tell them, hey, do you want the Lord? Do you want him to be your savior? Then he wants you. Just give your life to him. Come to him. Cast yourself upon him right now. Follow him. Amen. Lord, Lord Jesus, what a glorious savior you are. And Father, what a glorious God you are. You've, you've kind of curled off the top and let us see a little bit more inside to see more of your glory. And Lord, the only way we will enjoy this as, as glorious is if we take a God-centered perspective on this whole chapter. If we see it from your perspective, help us to do that, Lord. Help us to see the glory there is in wrath, the glory there is in almighty power, the glory there is in mercy. And Lord, let us bow as mere creatures before you, ascribing all the praise to our maker, the one who brought us into existence and has redeemed us by the blood of his son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.